Hey everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Busy night tonight, so I better jump right into it. I got uh, a little carried away with the episode today. I don't think it'll go too long, but I don't want to waste time either. So, jumping right back into the short mini-series on the Legends of the West. Today we are talking about Crazy Horse, and along with Crazy Horse we are talking a wee bit about just American Indian culture in general so that we can set the scene for the next episode which will be the battles between american soldiers and american indians and the last stand so let's jump right into it a lot of details to cover really interesting topic i really kind of dove deep into it without even trying to just because i was so interested in it but we better get started so i am brett bilesma i am the host of the curiosity chronicles and this is what i was curious about this month little housekeeping before I get started. You'll hear me throughout this episode refer to American Indians. That is the 2023 preferred term is what I've read, that American Indians prefer to be called American Indians. I might slip up. I might use the term Native Americans. I may say Indian at time, but I'm going to do my best to refer to them as American Indians, as is apparently the preferred term, because I think that's a good thing to do. Now, I want to set the scene a little bit before I jump into Crazy Horse life. The setting and the culture of American Indians is important to not only this episode, but the upcoming episode. So I want to talk a little bit about where this is all taking place. And that's happening on the Great Plains. Now, in history books, especially history of American Indians, you hear a lot about the Great Plains. But what does that mean? I've always been fascinated with the Great Plains, and I didn't really know a lot about them other than, you know, reading westerns and historical books of that nature, fiction and nonfiction. And it's it's such a romanticized image, you know, the, the vast open plains. And it's filled with bison, buffalo, American Indians, pioneers, the Oregon Trail, you know? And... I wanted to dig into it a little bit, set the scene so that you can visualize what's happening. So the Great Plains stretch from about 100 degree meridian west to the Rocky Mountains, but that doesn't really mean anything unless you're a geography professor. So in layman's term, that's basically all of the Dakotas, Kansas, Nebraska, parts of Colorado, Montana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Texas, parts of Wyoming, and it stretches up into areas of Canada, but we're going to just leave that for now. We're just going to talk about basically American Indians and the Great Plains in America. Now, the Great Plains are covered in prairie grass, and because there are droughts in the Great Plains, that prairie grass has developed roots that are two feet deep, so it is very hardy. And there's not many trees, but there are some, mostly by streams and rivers. It's mainly cottonwoods. So vast open grassland with some cottonwood trees, by the streams and rivers. Now, rain is needed often on the plains. Like I said, there's droughts, but when they get rain, they get rain. Violent storms, unforgiving heavy rainfall, could be tornadoes, of course, especially you hear about Oklahoma and Tornado Alley, lightning, flooding, hail, 
violent and unpredictable blizzards in the winter that can come out of nowhere with extreme cold. So it is a beautiful and romanticized place, but it can be a very unforgiving place. Now that being said, it is home to an incredible diversity of animals. They are everywhere on the Great Plains. The prairie grass is extremely nutritious and it's everywhere. So animals, of course, flock there. Now, this seems like a totally bizarre made-up fact, but this comes from Stephen Ambrose's book, Crazy Horse and Custer. I think that's the name of it. It's in the notes. Now, I use this book heavily, and I respect Ambrose as a historian, a popular historian. But in his book, he says that in 1901, an observer estimated that in Texas alone, there were 800 million prairie dogs. Which is a mind-blowing number because they're going to also be scattered throughout all of the Great Plains. So, I mean, you're talking billions of prairie dogs? I don't even know. I can't even fathom the number. Great Plains also have jackrabbits, antelopes, what we would call pronghorns maybe, deer, wolves, coyotes. They were all in the Great Plains and we're talking millions of them. And I'm talking in the 1800s, not necessarily right now. Anytime I'm talking about the Great Plains right now in these statistics, we're talking 19th century. Thousands of elk and bear, but of course, the one animal that is most intrinsically linked to the Great Plains is the bison, also known as the American buffalo. And I did look it up, because I was under the impression that buffalo was like an incorrect, incorrect term, and it was supposed to be bison. But American buffalo is technically a correct term made me happy because like it's a buffalo it's what we grew up calling it at its heyday the great plains herd of buffalo may have numbered up to 75 million head just an insane number of buffalo in the great plains now as i'm sure you've heard before buffalo were essential to life on the great plains because they could be used for almost every necessity of human life obviously they were hunted for meat duh but their fur and skin made shelter and clothing. Weapons, utensils, even toys could be made from the bones. They even provided fuel when wood was not available, a.k.a. buffalo chips. They could burn them to start fires. Everything about the buffalo could be used when the American Indians hunted them. Nothing went to waste. Those were just a few very small examples. Now, in the 16th and a good portion of the 17th century, the American Indians had civilizations on the plains, but they weren't roaming around the plains like we envision later in the 19th century in the westerns and the fiction of you know later on. Because they didn't have horses. They were basically stuck more to permanent village villages by rivers. That was 16th, 17th century civilization of the Great Plains. Lack of horses prevented the way of life that we have come to imagine, and that didn't change until later on into the 18th and 19th century. Occasionally, like once or twice a year, tribes like the Mandan or the Arikara, I'm horrible with pronunciation, I'm sorry, the Arikara, the Arikara, yikes, the Omaha or the Osage would go on buffalo hunts and they would use travois pulled by dogs. Travois basically two sticks parallel to each other with a platform over top of it that they could lay things on and then the dogs would pull it using the two sticks. That would get the meat back to the village. 
Now, by about 1690 or so, the introduction of the horse from the Spanish hit the Great Plains. And when I say horse, it's more accurately actually a pony. And they started to become widely used by the American Indians in the Great Plains. Now, the ponies, mostly pintos is what they're called, which is a, just a type of pony based on the look of its fur. Fur? Does a pony have fur or hair? That's a weird question. I don't know. Anyway, they were important to the American Indians because they were mostly self-sufficient, which is good because American Indians were not always very aware of the needs of their herd. They were a little bit neglectful. So pintos, pretty self-sufficient, were able to take care of themselves. The pinto pony had more endurance than your average whiteman's horse. It wasn't faster, but it could go further. And they were agile as well is beneficial to the American Indian. Now, along with the horse, the other innovation that, of course, changed American Indian culture was the introduction of the gun. American, no, excuse me, at this point it wasn't American. French and English fur traders traded guns for pelts to the eastern tribes, and those tribes then used the guns to push their American Indian enemies further west. And that is how most of the tribes that became known as American Indian, or excuse me, as Plains tribes came to the Plains. They didn't start there. The Crow, the Arapaho, the Blackfoot, the Cheyenne tribes, they all were Eastern tribes that got pushed West by their enemies. And the most famous, at least in my opinion, and the last to come West were the Sioux, which is the most important tribe for the purposes of this podcast. The Sioux were native to Minnesota, and they got pushed west by their historical enemy, the Cheyenne, and nope, excuse me, misspoke, misread that. They got pushed west by their historical enemies, the Chippewa, and ended up coming to the plains. Now, they came west in about the year of independence, 1776. Now, this is a quote from Stephen Ambrose's book, it says, quote, With the horse and the gun, the Plains Indians set up the most effective barrier the Europeans met in their drive to settle the continent. As Walter Webb reminds us, for two and a half centuries, the Plains Indians maintained themselves with great fortitude against the Spanish, English, French, Mexican, Texas, and American invaders, withstanding missionaries, whiskey, disease, gunpowder, and lead. None resisted more fiercely than the Sioux, the only Indian nation to defeat the United States in war and force it to sign a peace treaty favorable to the red man, end quote. Now, it should be pointed out to understand later events the way that American Indians waged war. Now, we're into the 18th century, let's say. They've moved west. The Sioux are in the plains now. And they're, they've developed their own culture. That culture did not wage war the same way that we understand it now, especially but even in that time, they did not wage war the way white men understood it. The American Indians did not go to war to kill. At least that was not the primary concern. They wanted to gain honor and prestige. And the way for a warrior in an American Indian society to gain honor was to count coup. And the way that you did that was to touch a living enemy with your hand, with a spear, or your bow. Killing an enemy from the distance with a gun or with a bow gave you no prestige because it did not take great bravery, according to the Indians, to kill someone with a bullet from distance. It took great bravery to charge into the enemy lines 
dodging bullets and arrows and touch a living warrior and then make your escape. Rarely did wars among tribes devolve into full-scale battles with heavy loss of life. Later on, we'll get to it, we'll talk about it a little bit, but in a raid on one tribe to another, the loss of two or three braves was considered a catastrophic loss. Now, that's how American Indians waged war among each other. Obviously, things are going to change, which we will see in this episode and, of course, in the next episode. Now, eventually, American Indians, and this I'm just talking in general on the plains, became more and more in contact with white settlers, especially along the Oregon Trail. And different tribes reacted differently to the white settlers. Some befriended the whites, and some, of course, turned hostile. There was a Hunk Papa Sioux tribe member, and I'm going to explain what the different tribes of the Sioux are in a second here. Sitting Bull, obviously one of the most famous American Indians of all time. But at the time that American settlers were starting to come into contact with the Sioux, not yet well known. He wanted his people to leave the area around the Oregon Trail and just go back to their ancestral ways. His quote, The whites may get me at last, but I will have a good time till then. You are fools to make yourselves slaves to a piece of fat bacon, some hardtack, and a little sugar and coffee. End quote. Now the Sioux Nation, especially, was divided in how they should treat the white men. It was obvious that they were going to come more and more contact. Settlers were streaming down the Oregon Trail. There was obviously going to be a seismic shift in the makeup of the country and the relations between American Indians and the white men. How they were going to deal with that is yet to be seen. But that kind of sets the scene for the time period that Crazy Horse was born into. Now, Crazy Horse was part of the Sioux tribe, but that is not as simple as it sounds. Now, the Sioux is a confederacy of many tribes that speak different dialects of the same language. Now, the confederacy is mostly made up of the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Nakota. Now, the, Na the Dakota, also known as the Santee Sioux, mostly in Nebraska and Minnesota. And for our purpose of this episode, I'm not really going to talk much about them. The Nakota, or the Yankton Sioux, are the smallest and live in the Dakotas in Montana. And again, not really relevant to this particular podcast. What is relevant to this podcast are the Lakota, or the Teton Sioux. You'll hear them called both. And they are the largest and the westernmost tribe living in mostly the Dakotas as well, but you'll hear from this episode they, they move around a bit. For our purposes, that's what we're going to be focused on. Because most of the main players in this episode and the next are part of the Teton Sioux. Now, the Teton Sioux themselves are broken into seven different tribes that all spoke the Lakota language. The tribes are the Blackfoot, the Brule, B-R-U-L-E, the Hunkpapa, like I said, was Sitting Bull's tribe, the Minikanju, the Oglala, which is Crazy Horse's tribe, the Sands Arks, and the Uhen Anpa, which is, I'm not 100% sure if I'm pronouncing multiple of those right. I always think, I mean, why do I not look these things up? I did, I mean, I did look up, but I found 
contrasting. It doesn't matter. Anyway, those seven tribes are the main ones that we're going to be talking about today. Now, along with the culture of the Sioux, we just briefly need to talk about where they lived beyond just the Great Plains in general. Now, you may have heard of the Black Hills in South Dakota. Now, they didn't technically live there, but we need to talk about the Black Hills so that you have some context for follow-up episodes, and this is a good time to talk about it. So the Black Hills are a mountain range in the Dakotas with a max elevation of 7,200 feet. They're not huge, and they did not live there permanently. The Sioux did not live there permanently, but it became a holy place for the Sioux. They believed it was a place where spirits lived. They called the Black Hills the Pahasapa, which means the hills that are black, because seen from a distance, they're covered in pine trees and they appear to be black, hence the name in both Lakota and English. Now, the Black Hills were pretty untouched by white men until 1874, but they are crucial to the upcoming story. So just keep that in mind. It's a sacred place of the Sioux. Now, we've got some of the background details figured out. So let's talk about Crazy Horse in general. And you'll notice as I go through this story, talking about Crazy Crazy Horse's life, but weaving through the story is going to be just generalizations of the Sioux Nation in a way that kind of makes a full picture of what's happening between the American Indians and the whites at this time. So it's kind of a vague biography of Crazy Horse because there's just a lot of information in general to talk about. But we will hit Crazy Horse's life quite a bit. Now, the details of Crazy Horse's life are fuzzy at best, at least his birth. I shouldn't say the details of his life. The details of his early life are fuzzy. Now, some sources say his mother was a Minikanju woman. Others say Brural. And there are some disagreement even on what her name was or even if we know her name. Now, some sources say his mother was a woman named Rattling Blanket Woman. And that seemed to be the consensus. So, Rattling Blanket Woman of the Brural, I believe. And dates of Crazy Horse's birth, also disputed. Dates range from being born in 1838 all the way up to 1845, but it seems like 1841 is the best bet for the year that Crazy Horse was born. Crazy Horse was his parents' second child. He was the first son, and he had a sister whose name apparently is lost to history, which seems odd. Now, when Crazy Horse was born, beginning of his life, little different than what we would be used to here in the 21st century. The Sioux believed that colostrum was poison for a baby. And so the baby was not allowed to breastfeed until the mother's milk came in. So berries, herbs, things like that were made into a juice. They put it into a buffalo bladder and the buffalo bladder was used as a bottle. And that was a baby's first meal on the American Plains. Now, the mother would have her colostrum sucked out by an older woman. And then once her milk would come in, would nurse the baby. Crazy Horse was different than other Ogallala babies in terms of how he looked. He had light curly hair, he had a lighter skinned complexion, and he just was set apart based on how he looked. Not in a bad way, but he looked different. Now, Crazy Horse would not receive his quote-unquote real name based on Sioux culture which was Crazy Horse, 
until he had accomplished some notable deed or had a vision, which we'll get to later. So he had multiple nicknames when he was a kid, and this is common for most of Sioux culture. The one that seemed to stick was Curly. So for historical accuracy, for a good portion of this episode, I'm going to refer to him as Curly. Now, Curly had a respectable family. His father was a healer and interpreter of dreams, not a warrior. And interestingly enough, his father's name was Crazy Horse, which is very confusing, so I do the best I can to just refer to him as Curly's father. But you'll you'll see how this all comes about later on in the episode. So, Sioux men customarily had more than one wife. And oftentimes they would marry sisters. The belief being, sisters would get along, and it would be a harmonious house. <laughs> I don't know how well that worked out for him, but seemed to work, I guess. Now, Curly's father had uh, an older wife that died. And they... Uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. The older of the sisters that Curly's father married had passed away. Now, both of those sisters were also a sister of Spotted Tail, who had become a brutal leader and became one of the most famous American Indians in the war against the white men coming up. He held the position of brutal leader for like 30 years. So, in general, the family of Curly was respected. Now, Sioux culture, in terms of how they treated their children, was a little bit different than what we expect in our own culture today. Children in Sioux culture were fed on demand, not on a schedule. They didn't have like a bottle schedule. And oftentimes, a child did not wean until they decided to. So it was common for Sioux children to nurse up until the time they were six or even older. And it was not exclusive to just the mother's child. The Sioux were very, very cultural dependent. How do I say that? They they needed to maintain a close connection between the entire tribe, not just family. So they raised their children to put the tribe as the main way to get what they needed. The tribe had to work together to sustain their life on the plains. So children would often just be playing and whatever woman was close enough, they would nurse from that woman. As Ambrose puts it, quote, the system gave the mothers more freedom than they could have enjoyed had they been solely responsible for the nurturing of their children, while it implanted in the children the fundamental Sioux doctrine that everything the tribe had was to be shared equally, end quote. That was a much better way of saying what I was trying to say just a little bit ago. Now, Sioux children were treated with love and tenderness, of course, but in a different way that you would expect white children to be treated at the same time period. Curly was welcome in any teepee at any time. You just walk right in, and they would welcome him. And fathers and other men would especially play with the children for hours at a time. They had a large devotion to their children, so much so, in fact, that a husband and a wife would not sleep together or even sleep in the same bed for as long as the child was nursing. If a child nursed 
for six years, the father and mother slept apart because they were afraid that if they started their marital relations, that the nursing would stop, that the milk would dry up. That is dedication right there. Now, love and tenderness was common in the Sioux Nation, but hard lessons were also given to children in the Sioux culture. And by hard lessons, I mean they learned by doing, and sometimes that meant by doing dumb things. So a Sioux parent or a Sioux adult would not stop a children from crawling towards the fire in the teepee. Now, obviously, they weren't going to let them get horribly maimed, but they would let them reach out towards the fire with the belief, which, honestly, probably accurate, is that once they reached into the fire once and got their hand burned, they're not going to be doing that again. It's a permanent lesson. Don't touch that fire. Not how maybe we do it these days, but also not like the worst way to do it, if you ask me. As long as you're not letting your child just fry their hand to the bone, a little burn, a little blister, and they're safe for a long time. And this was a culture, of course, in the 19th century where they had to have a fire at all times. So your children had to know, don't touch that. It wasn't just a novelty. It was essential to life. So it makes sense. Sioux children often were not clothed, ran around, especially in the summer and inside the teepee all year round, naked. No need to be clothed. Now, much of the learning that young children did was not necessarily from adults. Now, obviously, they had oral history and things like that passed down, but younger children learned from the older children mostly. This included things like potty training. The younger children just learned to follow the older kids to the spot outside the village that the village was using as a latrine. And the main way that children learned in the Sioux culture was through games. Younger children would play house. They would learn the social customs of their people by watching and doing in their own little game. And then as they got older, the games got rougher. But it was all purposeful for preparing them for adult life. There were games for endurance, brute force, ability to withstand pain. There were all essential skills, but it was all in game form. Kids love games, but if the games can teach you how to survive life on the plains, even better. Now, the most popular game was stealing meat from the drying racks. The meat was guarded by women being dried out into jerky over the fire, and children would try to sneak in and steal the meat without the women noticing. If they were caught, the women very purposefully would tease and ridicule them, and so would their friends. The purpose being, don't get caught. You will get mocked. It taught stealth. It taught daring and thievery. It taught bravery. All essential skills, because one of the main tasks for men in the Sioux culture who were of the warrior society was going on raiding parties and stealing other tribes' horses. So, of course, they had to know how to sneak. They had bow shooting competitions. Curly was probably making his own bow by the time he was 10 years old or so. And that was important because the Sioux were excellent with the bow and arrow. This is another quote from Ambrose. Quote, Colonel Richard Dodge stated that a Plains Indian could grasp 5 to 10 arrows in his left hand and discharge them so rapidly that the last will be on its flight before the first has touched the ground and with such force that each would mortally wound a man. A full-grown Sioux warrior could drive an arrow clear through a buffalo. End quote. 
Now, when Curly was old enough, he finally got his own colt to take care of, got his own pony, and he was responsible for the horse, and then he also took his turn guarding the village herd from thieves. And since he started at a young age, he was able to learn things constantly about especially riding a horse. He learned how to sleep while he was riding his horse, which is an insane skill. I don't know how anybody could do that, but they did it. He could gallop past a comrade on the ground, grab him by the back, and jerk him up into his, into his horse, which is like a movie move. But they learned how to do these things. A bunch of other tricks. Those are just two of the ones that were crazy to me. But these were all skills that they needed to have to survive. Now, in terms of their culture, that's where the older adults came in. During the winter nights especially, there wasn't much to do. Curly and the younger generation of Sioux learned from the grandmothers and grandfathers of the Sioux culture and what was to be expected of them. Now, when I say grandfather and grandmother, that's just a term in Sioux culture for basically any older person in the tribe. They would refer to any older person as grandfather or grandmother. Now, they learned things like culture and tribal traditions, where the Sioux came from, and practical things like why should the entrance of a teepee always point east? Which, incidentally, is because of two reasons. One, it allowed them to gain strength from the rising sun, but more practically, the winds came from the west. So pointing the door to the east prevented wind from blowing into the teepee and taking it away or blowing dust and things like that in. They also learned how to set up the group of teepees. It was a big circle with an opening pointing towards the east again. They learned Sioux law and politics. These things, the Sioux did not have a written language, so none of this was written down, but they were able to learn orally from the olders, older folks in the, gener in, in the generation above them, and then eventually when it was their turn, they'd pass it down to the generation below. Now, Sioux boys especially would often have a special friendship that would, they would call Colas, K-O-L-A-S. They were partners in all things. They would share material belongings. They would hunt. They would make war together. They were loyal to each other in all things. And Curly had a cola. His name was High Backbone. But he was mostly known by his nickname, Hump. Hump was a mix. Minikanju Oglala Sioux, who was slightly older than Curly. And you'll hear about Hump probably quite a bit if you read about the history of Crazy Horse or listen to this podcast, it'll probably come up again. Now, Curly did not have the education that we would expect, but he had the education that he needed. His life was so different from the white men on the East Coast that, of course, his education is going to look different. By the time he was 10, Curly could ride out onto the prairie all day by himself. And when he would get home, his father would question him. And by the time he was 10 years old, or shortly thereafter, Curly knew which side of the tree lighter bark grew on, and which side had the more regular branches. He could describe birds and their activities. For example, if a swallow flew with their mouth empty, they were going towards water. Which means the brave could follow to water. If the swallow had mud in its mouth, they were leaving water. And this was the most fundamental lesson that you could learn on the American Plains. As Thomas Mails put it, Quote, wherever he was, a first requirement that was by merely looking at the country, a warrior should be able to judge accurately in what direction water could be found in the approximate distance to it. That's from Ambrose's book. 
And Curly got his education like that from the animals. He learned how to be a patient hunter from watching hawks and eagles. He learned where water was from watching the birds and the wild horses. He learned how to elude capture from watching the coyotes. That was how he got his education. His teachers were the animals. Plains Indians also learned from older generations the medicinal properties of over 2,000 plants. And despite not having a written language, as we talked about, Curly was given this information orally and he learned it and passed it on as well. So he had the knowledge he needed to survive. It might not be a traditional education, but it allowed him to live. Now, Curly was a hunter before he was a teen. Most Sioux boys would go out on hunting expeditions by the time they were 10 or 11. Basically, if you were strong enough to hold, draw a bow, and shoot an arrow with enough force to kill a buffalo, you could go along. Now, as a kid, as you already probably noticed, they were introduced to a lot of activities that you might not expect. Hunting buffalo, Curly, age 10, went on his first horse-catching expedition, rounding up wild horses on the plains. Young kids, they threw him into it, right into the ringer. Curly was the first boy from his age group who tried to break one of the ponies, unknown if he was successful or not. And in terms of war parties, Curly probably snuck off to his first war party when he was 10 or 11. This was a common occurrence. They weren't allowed to go per se, but they would sneak off with the war party and try to keep hidden until they were too far away to be sent back. And they were kept far from danger. This was an expected thing that most Sioux boys did. And so they were kept back with the horses, weren't allowed to actually go on the raid itself, but they were there. They could get the feel of the expedition, and it allowed them to take on a more adult role in the tribe. They were allowed to smoke the pipe from now on, and they could speak in the presence of their elders once they had gone on a war party. So it was an important rite of passage. As Curly got older, he started to show some differences from those around him of a similar age, other than just the way he looked, of course. He was quiet and modest, and this was in an Oglala Sioux society that was boastful, and it was the norm or even expected for a young warrior to brag about his exploits at the fire at night. And Curly was somewhat offended by the Sioux custom of wild displays of emotion. This just wasn't his scene. And he refused to brag about himself. Just not what he did. He didn't make rough jokes. He didn't enjoy loud singing. And he did not feel the need to partake in the Sundance to prove himself. Which I will get to probably in the next episode. The Sundance is horrible in my mind. Rite of passage. Teaser for the next episode. But Curly did not take part. And he wasn't looked down on for any of this. He was just... It was... It was odd. He was different. But that being said, he had still earned, in his younger years, a lot of respect as a hunter and a warrior. He was his main occupation, so to speak, as we understand. I mean, they didn't really have occupations in an American Indian culture that was different than the white man's culture. But in our terms, his occupation was hunter. And then, of course, he was a warrior when needed. Now... In their teenage years, Curly and Hump had added Little Hawk, who was Curly's younger brother, actually I think it was his half-brother, and Lone Bear to their group, and they spent nearly all of their time 
together. And in his early teens, Curly was practically full grown. He's six foot tall, tall guy, pretty skinny, but on the plains, muscular, lean, not uh, not unhealthy in any way. And again, light brown, maybe even medium blonde hair and a light complexion, even once he came of age. Like it wasn't like he was born like some children are lighter skin, lighter hair. And then as they grow up, they darken and their hair becomes more of a brown color. He stayed fairly light skinned and light complected for most of his life. A Sioux who grew up with Curly, a man named Short Bull, described him, quote, his features were not like those of the rest of us. His face was not broad, and he had a sharp high nose. He had black eyes that hardly ever looked straight at a man, but they didn't miss much that was going on all the same. End quote. So those were the younger years of Curly and what was to be expected of a young boy in a Sioux tribe. But moving on into his later teen years into becoming uh, a man, into his manhood. 1854, roughly, the Ogallalas and the Brules were camped around Fort Laramie region. Fort Laramie is in Wyoming, and it was obviously a fort where there was white soldiers, and the American Indians of the Plains came to Fort Laramie to get handouts, basically. They got food and supplies and things like that. And some of the American Indians stayed around the Fort Laramie area and became kind of derisively known as Laramie Loafers. They just hung around there. They kind of gave up their ancestral ways and kind of relied on the white men's handouts. This is, of course, one of the things that is going to cause tension in the American Indian culture when they start going to war with the white man. Now, there had been a little bit of trouble between the Sioux and the white soldiers in the previous summers, but there's nothing really too serious so far. And the Sioux traded with the fort's occupants. Like, it was a business transaction for the most part. Now, Fort Laramie was on the Oregon Trail, which, if you play the game back in the early 90s, you'd know that. It's the first one you hit, I think, (laughs) if I remember, right? No, that's not true. You hit Fort Kearney first. I digress. My son loves the old school Oregon Trail game, so I play it all the time and I still can't remember. Now, it was on the Oregon Trail and Curly probably went on a few raiding expeditions where young braves would steal a horse or a cow or some cooking utensils, maybe even a rifle, from a traveler on the trail during the night. Nothing too serious, just more of a nuisance, basically. And the Sioux thought it was harmless fun, but profitable because they could get some supplies they needed. However, the white soldiers at the fort did not see this as just a nuisance or harmless fun, and they were starting to grow frustrated with the Sioux behavior. So on August 17, 1854, a Mormon wagon train was passing by the Brule Sioux encampment near Fort Laramie, and a mini Kanju brave named High Forehead, who was in the area as well, shot an old cow with an arrow, and this freaked out the Mormons, who ran to the fort, told the story with a large amount of embellishment to the fort's commander, who was a man named Lieutenant Hugh Fleming, 28 years old. Really interesting just to think about that. This was not experienced generals commanding men on the plains. 
a lot of the tension in my mind, in my somewhat amateur opinion, is because the soldiers that were in charge out west were young, looking to prove themselves, and a little bit hot-headed. They had access to weapons, power, and alcohol. So, it's just, I don't blame necessarily anybody for what happened, so to speak. At least in the early stages. But it was just a volatile mix of a lot of different things that led to death. So, Fleming sends for a man named Conquering Bear. Conquering Bear was a brutal Sioux who the whites had believed they had made chief of all the Sioux. That's a totally foreign concept to the Sioux. They are a decentralized group of people. They have no concept of, you know, a president per se. That doesn't make sense to them. They had no concept of someone being the chief of the Sioux. I mean, there's too many different tribes of Sioux for there to be one person in charge. But the whites had this concept that Conquering Bear was the chief of the Sioux. So they send for him. And Fleming demands that Conquering Bear turn over High Forehead. And Conquering Bear basically said to him, I can't do that. I'm a Brule and he's a mini Kanju. I have no authority over him. And Conquering Bear told Fleming if he wanted High Forehead, go and arrest him. That's what you're here for. Now, Conquering Bear goes back to his encampment. He tells his people what happened. And the Sioux young men, again, hot-headed and ready to prove themselves on the other side of the spectrum, Start preparing for war. Now, Curly may have been around to witness this, but it's not 100% true, 100% verified. Now, the Sioux were not about to let armed white men come into their camp and arrest one of them, despite the old men's protestations. The older men were trying to talk them down, letting cooler heads prevail, and just let the situation play out. Trying to keep the peace. Unsuccessfully, unfortunately. Now, Lieutenant Gratton who is a loud-mouthed, also 28-year-old, hot-headed officer with a drinking problem, is the one that is selected to lead the soldiers from the fort to go arrest High Forehead. And he'd been talking earlier, you know, it's not part of this story per se, but just in general, he had written home about how he wanted to whip the Sioux and got to get rid of these nuisance, thieving Sioux and give me a few men and some weapons, and we can whip the whole lot of them. You know, a big blowhard, basically. Now, he led 31 men, a 12-pound field gun, and a mountain howitzer from the fort. Now, that's a lot of firepower, but there are roughly 1,200 Sioux warriors in the Fort Laramie area, and most of them are gathered near the Brule encampment. They've heard what's happening, and they came to the Brule encampment. So. It's a pretty arrogant move by Grattan to think that he can come out there with 31 men and a howitzer and a field gun and be good to go. Grattan had with him a interpreter. The interpreter was a half French, half Iowa Indian named Wyus, I think it is. And the Sioux hated Wyus. And there are reports that say that Wyus was drunk and Grattan may also have been drunk at the time. So they started shouting, I shouldn't say they, Wyus started shouting insults at the Sioux, which seems unnecessarily inflammatory, and Grattan demanded that High 
high forehead surrender, who he of course refused. I'm, like, I'm not going with you. Grattan lost his patience, despite the fact that Conquering Bear was in between the lines of the American Indians and the American white soldiers trying to de-escalate. Grattan loses his patience and orders a volley. Conquering Bear is hit nine times. And he's mortally wounded, but he doesn't die right away. The Sioux see this happen and, of course, quickly retaliate. And because there are so many of them, they ride down on Grattan and his men and, in a very short amount of time, kill every single one of them. The Sioux see that Wayus has run away, the interpreter. He has taken refuge in a teepee. They drag him out, they kill him, and then they mutilate his body. Not the best move for the white soldiers from Fort Laramie. But the Sioux could not then press their advantage. If they really wanted to end this conflict, the best way to do it would be to probably take Fort Laramie, which they could have done. But they don't have cohesive leadership. This is something that will come up later on again and again and again. They are decentralized. They don't have one person or a group of people in a small group making decisions for the larger nation of the Sioux. So people just go off and kind of do their own thing. That's not a way that you're going to fight a war. So they take down Grattan and his men. And honestly, the Sioux at this point just figure, well, that's the end of that. And they leave. That's how they would have done it if it was a war between two tribes. So why should this be any different? Now, Curly witnessed this. That we know for sure. He witnessed this, including the mortally wounded body of Conquering Bear. So... The Sioux move out from there. Curly sees Conquering Bear dying on a travoy, I believe. And he he doesn't know what to think. So he rides out into the prairie by himself. They're in western Nebraska at this point. And Curly had decided to seek a vision. Vision quests were a central aspect of the Sioux male life, and they followed a pattern. There was a purification rite, or rites, a process of purifying oneself. They usually went alone to a holy place. They stayed awake until a vision came upon them, and then they would tell this vision to a holy man who would interpret it for them. And visions became a guide for a man's life. They were not to be ignored. It was basically a way to map out your destiny as a Sioux man. Now, that being said, most of the time, visions would somehow correlate to the preconceived notion of what a man wanted to do, i.e. become a warrior or become a holy man, a Interpreter of dreams like Crazy Horse's father, Curly's father, excuse me, <laughs> slipped up. But it could also be a vision that would tell a Sioux man to dress like a woman and become a homosexual. That was a path that a Sioux man could take. And they were not judged for these things. They were following their vision and they could not be looked down on for this. Now, successful vision seekers knew who they were, what they were, and what they must do. So Curly needed some guidance at this point. 
I don't recall if it said exactly what his age was at this point. I would say, based on context, he was maybe 15, 16. Early teens, not quite fully an adult, but maybe more of an adult than what I was at 15 or 16, for example. So, he went off on his own. He fasted for two days and he did not sleep at all for those two days. Unfortunately, no vision came. And finally, he gave up. He's very dejected. He goes to find his pony that he had hobbled by a lakeshore, I believe. And that's when the vision came upon him. Most likely, he had fainted. And vision, dream, kind of interchangeable here. But the vision or dream comes upon him. And he then later on told Braves and at least one white man what he saw. And so I'm paraphrasing from the stories that Curly told that were put into the book that was written by Ambrose. So what Curly saw was a man on horseback that rode out of the lake, but the horse kind of floated above the ground and changed colors. The man that was riding the horse, a warrior, wore plain leggings, a very simple shirt. He had an unpainted face and a single feather of a hawk was in his hair. Behind one of his ears, was tied a small brown stone. Now, the man did not seem to speak, but nonetheless, Curly could hear him clear as day. And he told Curly, never wear a war bonnet, never tie his horse's tail in a knot, which was a common Sioux practice. And he told Curly that before he goes into battle, he should brush some dust over his horse in streaks, but not paint the pony, and he should also rub dirt over his own body and hair said if he did these things, he would never be killed by a bullet or an enemy, but never take anything for himself. And that includes things like taking scalps. Now, the whole time this man was talking, he seemed to be fighting off a shadowy, shadowy enemy. There were people trying to grab him in this vision. There were bullets and arrows flying by him, but he was not touched. Now, at this point in the vision, a storm came upon the man on the horse, and lightning strikes and a zigzag of lightning seemed to appear on the man's cheek and there were hailstorms falling and hailstorm spots, so to speak, came on the man's body. And then the storm faded. The man's people appeared to grab him, pull him off the horse, bring him back to his people or something. A hawk screamed and the dreamer vision was over. And Curly was not overly impressed with this vision. So he continued fasting. He was like, forget that. I don't what 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 was that? I don't like that. I need another vision. Which was acceptable practice. But eventually he couldn't stay awake any longer, fell asleep in what must have been a dreamless sleep. And when he woke up, his father and hump were standing over him. And his father was pissed. Remember, Curly's father was a holy man, an interpreter of dreams. And he was furious because Curly had sought a vision without having purified himself first. And he had not gotten the advice of his elders before he had left to go seek his vision, which was also a common practice. So he didn't go about it in the Sioux way. His dad was very angry. So sheepish, sheepishly, Curly returns back to camp and tells 
no one about his vision. A few days later, Conquering Bear dies from his wounds, and the Brules go off on a hunt. Now, Curly was with the Brules at this point, most likely because his mother was a Brule, even though he's best known as an Ogallala Sioux. During the early years of his life, he spent a lot of time with a lot of different tribes. So, Curly, he's the first one in this hunting party to find the herd by, believe it or not, putting his ear to the ground and listening to the thundering hooves. And he was also the first one to kill a buffalo. Now, during the fall and spring, some of the young Brules and some of the Ogallalas and Minikonjou were raiding white travelers, but no one was killed. It was, again, just kind of a nuisance, but the white soldiers were out for revenge for what happened to Granton. And again, the Sioux treated this like any other intertribal warfare. They had rules of engagement that were not much different than if they were fighting against, say, the Cheyenne or something. I don't even know if they fought the Cheyenne, but for example. So it was a fairly normal summer. Hunting, the vision that he didn't tell anybody about, and a little bit of raiding white wagon trains and just having some fun. Now, by the summer of 1855, the Brules had kind of abandoned attacking white settlers because they had set off on a warpath against the Omaha and the Pawnee. And this was when Curly killed his first human being during an engagement against one of these two tribes, killed a person with an arrow. Now, when he went to go scalp that person, he realized that he had killed a woman. Now, this was not in Sioux culture considered to be a shameful act. Because in Sioux culture, a woman should not be killed by a warrior because the warrior should have protected her. So, by killing a woman, Curly was actually bringing dishonor on the Pawnee and Omaha warriors who failed to protect her. So it's not a shameful act. Now, in scalping her, Curly began to feel a bit sick. And he did not scale. He couldn't go through with it. Which, I know in our 21st century culture, we would say, well, yeah, of course. But you remember, this was a different time and a different culture. Scalping was a Fairly normal practice among Native Americans, American Indians, excuse me. But Curly, not a fan of it, left her be, and some other brave then took her scalp, and they gave Curly a fair amount of teasing. Now, years later, Curly told a white army officer that he disapproved of the ethics of the Sioux custom regarding enemy women. So, even though it wasn't considered a shameful act, there may have been a little bit of regret on Curly's end, or that could have been something that he developed over time. Who's to say? Now, during this time against on, on the warpath against the Omaha and the Pawnee, the Sioux were ignoring the white men. But the white men were not ignoring the Sioux. They were preparing a campaign. They had not forgotten about Granton. The Sioux may have thought that was a one-and-done thing, but not the American soldiers. The War Department had ordered Brigadier General W.S. Harney to get a force together at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas and march against the Sioux. A uh, little known tidbit, 
I did not know this until just recently, actually. When you hear about the War Department talking about the time period of the Civil War, the American Indian Wars, the War Department is what we now would call the Department of Defense. Just FYI. So the War Department is going against the Sioux, and Harney gathers 600 men, which is a larger force than expected at that time. It is larger than your average U.S. force post-Civil War, but it was also a size that seemed to indicate that they were still not taking the Sioux seriously. There are a lot of Sioux warriors on the American plains. 600 men, not going to cut it. But that's what they believed as white men that would be enough. If the Sioux acted together, they could crush 600 men. But we both know that's not how the Sioux worked. Now, many Sioux cooperated with the Indian agent in the area, and they moved to the and they moved south of the Platte River, basically to avoid this this army of six hundred men. They gave the Sioux an ultimatum: if you, through the Indian agent, who basically is a is a man who is a liaison between the white men and the American Indians, they said if you move south of the Platte River then we will consider you to be friendly. If you do not, we are going to consider you hostile. Most of the Brule and the Minikanju did not move and were then considered hostile. And the Brules con- continued to raid the Oregon Trail. They were not killing, but they basically stopped the wagon trains and demanded weapons and ammunition. Now, the leader of this particular brand, brand band of Brule Sioux was a man named Little Thunder, and he was... Not a very effective leader, at least not in the type of warfare that was marching on him, so to speak. He did not have scouts out. Curly and other of the younger Braves were out hunting, and they could have been better used as scouts. Little Thunder also encamped his people in an indefensible position, and seemed to have this belief that the army was just there for show, they were not going to attack. The Brules were cocky, they were overconfident, overconfident, they were unorganized, and mostly because of the Grattan affair, they figured if the white man wants to attack, we'll whoop them. So on September 3, 1855, Harney makes his move. Now, they had found the encampment of Little Thunder, and in what became a common tactic of the American soldiers on the plains, Harney sends his cavalry around to the far end of the Sioux encampment. A little thunder knows that they're there. He approaches Harney under a white flag, and Harney and Little Thunder talk. Basically, both of them are just stalling for time. It gets to a point, finally, they reach kind of a stalemate in their negotiations, and Harney tells Little Thunder, Hey, I'm here to fight. Get ready. Little Thunder goes back to his camp. And he tells his people, run. Take off. But unfortunately, they run right into the cavalry which had gotten behind the encampment. That was the reason Harney was stalling for time. He needed to get his men in position. It wasn't so much a battle at this point as a slaughter or massacre. There were 250 American Indians in the camp. 86 of them were killed and 70 women and children were captured. The rest are just scattered and ran off, 
helter-skelter with no provisions or shelter. So for the Sioux, this is obviously was a disaster, but it's on a different scale because of how the Sioux perceived warfare, like I told you earlier. Curly witnessed this firsthand. He came back from the hunting party and sees this devastation. He had been raised to believe that the loss of three or four warriors in a raid was a catastrophic loss. And now he has come back to an entire camp wiped out. Dozens of warriors killed. We're talking nearly a hundred people killed. And there are women that are dead. Women that are mutilated basically because the soldiers took their pubic hair as scalps. So just unjustifiable cruelty at that point. And Curly sees this and just it's hard to fathom what is happening to his people in his mind. Curly, in their scouring of the devastation, finds a survivor in the brush. It's actually a Cheyenne woman. She was visiting the Sioux. Her name is Yellow Woman. Not a super creative name. And she was visiting. Her husband and son had been killed in the massacre, and so Curly carried her to safety on a travoy. She actually turned out to be the niece of a man named Ice. He is a famous Cheyenne medicine man, and this was the beginning of Curly's long and very fruitful association with the Cheyenne, which I'm sure he'll about, hear about later. Now, the Harney campaign, or the Harney massacre, gave the white soldiers control of the Platte River Valley. American Indians pretty much stayed away at this point, except for their yearly visits to Fort Laramie for the handouts that were given to them, you know, for the trading purposes and things like that. Now, Curley spent a lot of this time traveling between different bands. For example, we know that he spent the winter of 1856 and 57 with the Cheyenne, and throughout his travels, the Sioux people, as well as some of the other tribes he met, they're all confused and frightened. It's starting to become real to them that the white man is going to be a big problem and we are not sure how to deal with it. Now, Curly heads back to his people. He's about 15 years old at this point and he has seen three American Indian camps destroyed in his young life. I kind of brushed over some of the other ones, but there was the the most recent one with Harney, and then there was a couple other ones that I didn't even have time to get into. But long story short, there has been some camps destroyed pre- and post-Harney incident that Curly has been witness to after the fact. I told you this episode got long. I just had to pare it down a little bit, and it wasn't really pertinent information at at this point, other than the fact that Curly witnessed it. So, for the most part, the camps that Curly witnessed being destroyed were destroyed with very little loss of white soldiers. There was very little casualties on the white soldier side. So, the American Indians has started to learn, or Curly has started to learn himself personally, that the American Indians had no chance of fighting the white men unless they worked together. And so, Curly ended up going to the great council that was called at Bear Butte. This was a council called by the leaders of the Sioux nations. 
and they all agreed to meet at this place called Bear Butte, and most of the Teton Dakotas were there. The Ogallalas, the Minikandru, the Sanzarks, the Blackfeet, the Hunkpapas, the largest gathering of Sioux in many years. And they wanted, at this gathering, to set a national policy for dealing with the white man. The Sioux got there. The Sioux, I'm not sure if that's actually proper. The Sioux, the tribes got there and they see how many warriors they have. They see the large number of people that have showed up and they look out over there and say, we are a strong people. And so the tone of this council became defiant. Look at how strong we are. We should not let them push us around, and it's time for us to fight. Now, there are some reports that may be apocryphal, but there are reports that say that at this council, Curly vowed to his father that he would fight the white man for the rest of his life. That would be his driving force. Now, pledges were made at this council, different tribes pledging allegiance to each other and help each other out, but in reality, Nothing was done in terms of practical, real-world application. There were no head chiefs elected. There were no generals appointed. They didn't organize scouts. They didn't come up with a system of sharing information. They didn't, they didn't even discuss how to arm themselves. Now, at this point, 1855, I think I said it was, late 1850s, only about one in 100 American Indian warriors had a gun, and probably less than half of those worked properly. And they were going up against howitzers and rifles and muskets. So there was just a lot of talk, but there wasn't any really discussion of how they were going to fight the white men. So not as helpful as it should have been. And honestly... If they could have maybe turned themselves into a cohesive nation, things would have gone a lot better for them a lot sooner. It would have been much more difficult for the white soldiers to take over. And let's be honest, the Sioux were a thorn in the side of the white American population for long enough from their perspective, the, from the white perspective. They were a thorn, and they could have been much worse. Now, it was also at this council at Bear Butte that Curly had his vision interpreted. During the council, Curly and his father built a sweat lodge. They went off by themselves, purified themselves, went to the sweat lodge, and Curly told his father about the vision. Now, his father interpreted it for him, as was his profession, so to speak, and he told Curly that he must become the man in the vision. Curly must dress as he dressed, wear a single hawk feather in his hair, have the stone behind his ear, never take anything for himself. Defining moment in Curly's life. Become the man in the vision. Now, they have this council to talk about defeating or fighting the white men, but then they don't really have to deal with the white men for a while because. The white man was preoccupied fighting each other, 
We're getting into very close to pre-Civil War time and also 1861 to 65 when the Civil War was actually happening. So during this time, the Sioux Indians were forced to migrate a wee bit because they the whites had kind of forced the buffalo herds to migrate. The grass on the Great Plains had been trampled and overgrazed, and so the buffalo herds had moved on. So the Sioux were forced economically, as we've discussed, they used the buffalo for everything, to follow the herds. This brought them to the Powder Basin. They left the Platte River area, and they moved into the Powder Basin, which is in parts of Montana and Wyoming. This put the Sioux, or at least part of the Sioux, into a decade-long war with the traditional quote-unquote owners. Nobody really owned it, of course, in their culture. The owners of the Powder Basin, which would be the Crows, the Shoshones, and the Arapahoes. They all wanted control of the Powder Basin. The Sioux were encroaching, and they wanted to take it. The Sioux wanted to take the land of the Crows, just like the Whites had quote-unquote taken the land of the Sioux. It was just... You get pushed out of one area, you push someone else out of another area. For most of the decade, this war among American Indians pretty much consumed Curly's life. They ignored the white men and focused on this war against the Crows and the Shoshones and the Arapahoes. This is about 1858 summer. Curly, Hump, Lone Bear, and Little Hawk and some of the other warriors headed west and they went farther than any other Ogallala Sioux had gone before. They get into the land of the Shoshone, or as the Sioux called them, the Snakes, and found an Arapaho village, an ally of the Shoshones, sort of, and decided that they wanted to attack. Now, Curly prepared himself as his vision told him. He put a single hawk feather in his hair, put the stone behind his ear. He painted a zigzag line from his forehead down one side of his nose down to his chin, which would signify the lightning. And then he painted some dots on his body to symbolize the hail that he saw. And then he, of course, sprinkled himself with dust and sprinkled his horse with dust. Now, the fight became a standstill, which was common in American Indian warfare. The two sides could see each other. They would shout insults back and forth. And then eventually a warrior would charge. And that, in this case, it was Curly. Curly charged. He counted coup three times. And all the while, the Sioux were chanting his name. He kept charging, kept charging. Bullets and arrows flying past him, missing him. He seems like he is untouchable. His medicine was strong, is what they were what they were saying. Just like the man in his vision. Can't be touched. Now, in the last charge, Curly sees two Arapaho Indians charging at him. Challenging him. Shoots one with an arrow from horseback killing him. His horse leaps over the dead man, and Curly turns in the saddle, spins, shoots the arrow at the other man, kills him as well. He then jumps off the horse and scalps both of these warriors. Just as he is taking the scalps, he's hitting the leg with an arrow. To Curly, this means that he, for a very short amount of time, forgot his guiding vision that says take nothing for himself, and because he forgot the vision, his medicine failed him, and he was wounded. 
He throws the scalps away, and with one exception, he never takes another scalp. His wound is bound by hump, I believe. He gets patched up. It's not a serious injury. And they decide that that is enough attacking for the day. The young warriors get back. Curly is celebrated. Again, he does not boast around the fire, but the other braves are singing his praises. His father, Crazy Horse, made a song that he sang throughout the village the next day. It goes like this, quote, My son has been against the people of unknown tongue, the Arapaho. He has done a brave thing. For this, I give him a new name, the name of his father and many fathers before him. I give him a great name. I call him Crazy Horse. So for the rest of his life, Curly is now Crazy Horse, and that is how I will refer to him from now until hopefully forever. Curly's father cannot call himself Crazy Horse anymore, so he went by a nickname from his youth and called himself Worm. Doesn't seem like a very flattering nickname, but I'm sure there's a story there that I can't get into. So, 1861 to 1865, things were good for the Sioux. The whites were off fighting the Civil War. They left the Sioux and other American Indians alone. The Ogallalas, which is Crazy Horse's tribe, took control of the Powder Basin and the buffalo herds there. So economically, things were great for the Ogallalas. And they had returned to the old ways. They were not getting handouts from Fort Laramie. They weren't getting drunk on the white man whiskey. They were living in the way that the Sioux had always lived, following the herds, hunting, and living on the plains. And these were great days, not only for the Sioux, but for the crazy horse as well. He had great hunting ability, and there were many animals for him to hunt. He was great at hunting by himself. He would sneak off, come back with an elk, or a deer, or maybe a buffalo. But he was, he was a bit of a loner sometimes with hunting. He worked well with the tribe, collaboratively, but also by himself. Became famous for that. He was involved in many battles, counted coup like crazy, gaining prestige in every engagement. And he had freedom. He was living the life that we kind of romanticize of the American Indian. It was his real life. Crazy Horse traveled all around the northern plains. He visited different tribes of Sioux, different bands. He visited the Cheyenne and just traveled, became very well known. He was known as a fantastic hunter, like I said, a daredevil warrior. And he had prestige that preceded him throughout his travels. People knew who Crazy Horse was. That being said, they didn't know it from Crazy Horse. He remained, despite becoming famous, quiet. He was modest. Most of the time when he went on a raid and stole ponies, he would give away the ponies that he stole. He had no interest in what would be considered the wealth of the Sioux Nation. He did not need to be wealthy. He gave away the meat that he didn't need from his hunting trips. He took what he needed for himself and he gave the rest of it away. And other people told his stories and he started to become legendary. Maybe because he wasn't a bragger was part of his legend as well. Now, 
Crazy Horse was a large reason, reason that the Ogallalas were successful against the Shoshones and the Crows and the Arapahos because he was known to have powerful medicine, is what they say. And if there was a raid going out against the Crows or the Shoshones and other warriors heard that Crazy Horse was going to be on the raid, they joined up. They wanted to be involved. They wanted to go with him. He was a safe bet because if Crazy Horse is there, we'll be successful. He was recognized as a war leader. And when I say leader, I mean Crazy Horse led from the front. He was the one to charge, usually well out in front of his men. It's very similar to Custer. You know, they, they have intertwined fates, but they share some personalities, traits. Uh, Custer obviously was a more of a bragger and a blowhard, and Crazy Horse was more modest, but in terms of how they approach battle, similar, charge from the front. And Crazy Horse was a meticulous planner. A childhood friend, a man named He-Dog, said this, quote, that is the kind of fighter he was. He didn't like to start a battle unless he had it all planned out in his head, and he knew he was going to win. He always used judgment and played safe. His brother and hump were reckless, end quote. So, Crazy Horse wasn't just a reckless warrior. He's only in his 20s at this point, just looking for prestige and power. He knew what it took to win, and he also knew when to not engage. That is a skill that some war leaders just do not have. Custer was reckless. Crazy Horse wasn't. You'll see how that plays out for both of them in the next episode. Now, in the summer of 1865, the Sioux had revived a system of government that they had not used in a while. It was a system of government where seven older leaders, men over 40, who they called Big Bellies, were chosen to advise and govern the people. And the Big Bellies selected four young men to kind of enforce their orders and to bring about the practices that they put into place. Those four men were called shirt wearers. Normally, the shirt wearers, wearers sheesh, were relatives or sons of the Big Bellies. But Crazy Horse, because of his renown, was selected as one of the four shirt wearers for the Ogallalas. Now, the shirt wearers were head of the warriors both on the march and in camp. They were required to make sure every Ogallala man, woman, and child had their rights respected, and they were given shirts to wear as symbols of their position. The shirts were made from bighorn sheep skin, and they were fringed with hair. Each lock of hair represented a brave deed that that warrior accomplished. Crazy Horse's shirt had 240 locks. Actually, more than that. It had at least 240 locks. And this was before the big, renowned battles against the white men. Crazy Horse, at a young age, was a leader of his people, elected by the Big Bellies to be a leader. It was a great honor for him. Now, I need to wrap it up. I had intended to get into more of the war against the American soldiers in this episode, but I'm at an hour and 20 minutes already. I gotta be done. 
I could go on and on. I absolutely love talking about the Great Plains, the American Indians, the soldiers coming from the forts to fight against the American Indians. I have respect for both of them. I have a lot of, I should say, I have respect for a lot of people on each side. I have a lot of disrespect for certain other people on each side. It's such a nuanced situation that I just, I'm fascinated by. So I was going to do an episode on The Last Stand that's coming up next, but that episode has expanded a little bit to basically be the war against the American Indians or the war against the white man and The Last Stand. I'm going to combine it. And I think it's going to be really interesting. It's kind of a tough subject because, yeah, there's a lot of horrible things that happen on each side. A lot of atrocities, a lot of racism, honestly. But it's, it is a fascinating subject. And I'm doing my best to just look at it from a totally outside perspective. Trying not to judge one way or the other. I just try to give you the facts. But that'll be next month. We'll bring Custer and Crazy Horse together. We'll talk about Sitting Bull. We'll talk about the Fetterman Massacre. Oh, it's going to be so good. You guys are going to love it, I hope. If you're still listening at this point, I have faith that you are really going to love it. But that's it for me today. Wrapping it up. I'll be back with you next month. My name is Brett Bilesma. I am the host of the Curiosity Chronicles, and I hope that you stay curious.